heart for you who fear my name. Yeah. The time is 102, and you're listening to the Lanky Guys podcast, The Word on the Hill. My name is Scott Powell. Yeah, and we're, I'm we're Father recording. Peter Bassett. We're recording. Oh, dude, oh, I like. I, dude, I, I thought you. <laughs> no, I changed our intro music today, and there's a reason that I played the welcome wagon. Dude, I love the welcome I wagon. I know you do, and we will get to the reason why. Oh, I know later. Why. No, you don't. Valkukata. Oh, no. no. So, you guys, we are the Lanky Guys. Yeah! And I'm going to tell you who I am. I am Father Peter Bassett. Wow, way to remember that you didn't tell anybody who you were. Yeah. I had already forgotten. Dude, this started off with the most ADD we ever have. we got to be more focused if we're going to get through all of the Easter Vigil reasons. Okay, here's the problem. Well, no, it's not a problem, but here's the task at hand, everyone. Okay. It is the Easter Vigil. And our annual tradition, lest some people think that we slack off and do something else. Slacking. This podcast, every year, we go through all of the readings for the Easter Vigil service. Now, you might ask yourself, why not do the readings from Easter Sunday? Well... The readings from Easter Sunday I, are I wonderful you that, and profound. Actually. You did. And I will actually, because I have small children who won't make it through the 10-hour-long Mass, we will be going to Easter Sunday morning. But liturgically speaking, <laughs> the Easter Vigil Mass is the highest point of the church's liturgical calendar. Absolutely. It is the centerpiece of the Easter celebration. So um, although you know Easter Sunday Mass is, is wonderful and perfectly valid and everything is great, we want to focus in on where the church actually puts most of her attention which is this Easter Vigil Mass, where the those who have been preparing for baptism will be baptized and confirmed in some places, um, and really where everything changes. On Easter Sunday morning, our liturgy is sort of basking in the glow of what actually happened late the night before. Mm, yes. So it's important um, that we do this. So whether or not you're going to be attending the Easter Vigil services at your parish or not, those are the ones that we're going to focus in on today because everything flows from that. Really, the whole liturgical year flows from this, right? Absolutely. Is that safe to say? Yes. Okay. And we have a lot of readings. How many readings do we actually have? Um, let's see. I think there's got... seven plus all of the Psalms. So that is One, two, seven to 14, 15, three, 16. Four, 16 five, readings? Seven, eight, nine, ten, Are we doing 12, 16 readings? 15, We're doing 16, 16 readings. 17, 18, 16, 20, 16, 21, 16. You're 16? reading all the options. Oh, dang it. <laughs> <laughs> there are seven Old Testament readings. Okay. A psalm that goes along with each one of them. Then we enter into the epistle, right? So what is normally the second reading. Then we have the responsorial psalm and then the gospel. So wait, 14, 15, 16, 17. So 17 readings. What we're going to try to do, we're doing this under an hour, so we're not going to do this sort of in-depth that we usually do on all of these. We're going to touch on them, but we really want to, we really want to bring out... The narrative and the common thread that flows through, again, not just four readings, but 17 <laughs> readings. <laughs> 21. And what they're doing... 21. I'm just checking. Stop it. What they're doing, though, is really... And this is what they do every year. This isn't particular to year B. But what they're doing is really recapping all of salvation history. And all of salvation history, what the liturgy is trying to show you is beginning from Genesis, going all the way through the story of Israel, what everything is doing is pointing toward the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the pinnacle moment, not just of the Christian life, but of the history of the world. And so that's what our readings are doing. We're going to try to show you how they're doing that this year. So let's jump in. We're going to go Genesis 1-1, in the beginning. Uh, uh, yes. Genesis 1-1 to Genesis 2-2. One one to two two. two, two. It's, this is what we call um, the first creation story in Genesis. Now there are two 
creation stories. Now, here's the thing. Now, I don't. I'm not getting all. The second one is zoomed in to the first one. Yeah, there, there's a lot. It's it's clear that there are, are two different perspectives. Some people argue that they're two different authors with two different agendas that hold two different times. I don't really buy that. But I there's there's clearly two different narratives. One is describing creation on sort of a macro level. This is the universe being created. God is speaking it all out of out of out of chaos, and you know out we're talking nothing. about cre- well, but it doesn't say that explicitly. That's what we know, and the scriptures oh. later on will attest to that. They'll give us the information to fill that in. Yeah, but it gives you the macro level. And then in in Genesis two four, it zooms in really on the creation of humanity and what that was like, and and sort of what that means and everything else. But yeah. what I love about the first creation account, so in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, um, Bereshith, uh, in the beginning. Um, well, let, let's say this much. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was formless wasteland. Um, tohu vabohu is what it says in Hebrew, which means formless and void. So every good story, every good narrative, and remember we said this: these readings are telling the narrative on a big level. Every good story has got to have a good problem, right? That's what a literature professor of mine once said. Ooh, that's a really good, Isn't that's, that great? I, I like that simplicity of how he said that. Yeah, that's Every true. good story has to have a good problem. So the good problem, well, the problem of this story begins right away. The problem is, even though God's creating all these things, there is a formlessness and a void. So it doesn't have form and it's empty. So it's formless and it's empty. That is the problem that the text presents us with. And so what it's going to go on to show is how God forms and fills. fills. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. So the first three days of creation, God will form things. So he'll separate light from darkness and sea from sky and then land and from, from water, water, right? Yep. Forming. And the subsequent three days, four, five, and six, he will then fill what he's formed. So he gives... Um, inhabitants to the habitats that he created. So on in day one, he separated light from dark. On day four, he puts the luminaries, the stars and the moon and the sun in the sky that he's created, in the light and the dark. And the sea, um, the sea and the sky on day two. On day five, he's going to fill it with birds and fish, right? And then, you know, on day three, he creates the land. Then later on, on day six, he's going to fill that land with animals and plants and humans, right? It's a beautiful, and what I really love about this, and this is this is what we can say about it, the way that this first creation account is laid out, it's like a big cosmic liturgy. It is so tightly structurally ordered and so perfectly put together, weaved together. Um, the author is, whoever this author is, whether it's Moses, I think it's Moses. That's the tradition of the church. Because it's Moses, Moses was face-to-face with God. So, yeah. I mean, his, his intellect would have been purified and, and perfected in a beautiful way. And the profound order to this, it, it, the formula that every day or that every part of the day has, it always begins with, then God said. And, and God said is repeated 10 times, which for the Jewish people, they said, oh, 10 times it says God said, 10 words of God, which mirrors or foreshadows the 10 commandments, which are also called in Hebrew, the 10 words. So this is God's 10 words. And if you read it correctly, C.S. Lewis brought this out in the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, oh. He, in the last one, I, for, I can't forget what, I, I don't remember the, the name of the last book. I don't um, either. The Last Battle, maybe, something like that. Anyway, but he talks about Aslan singing Narnia into existence. And really, this has been looked at as a big cosmic 
um, responsorial. So it says, and God said, God spoke, and there is a response from creation. It comes into being. And then God responds, and it was good. And then God says, and then creation responds. And then God says again, and then creation responds. It's this big responsorial liturgy of the universe, which all culminates. It's antiphonal, yeah. Which all culminates on day seven when God set it aside and rested. And of course, it's not that God needed a nap because he was so exhausted from doing this, but the word seven always is derivative of the covenant. So what it's saying is all these things that you people see around you, and this is probably being written into a culture where they're tempted to worship things like the moon and the sun and the stars and the plants and the brontosaurus. That's, a, that's a everybody. I mean, that's that's contemporary. Yeah, it is. It is. Now. It is. I mean, what, what, what's your church? Oh, my church is the is the is, is the creation. forest. Yeah. And so it's saying, as good and as profoundly beautiful as all those things are, there is one God who created all of it, who sang it into existence, and the fact that it's worded, it, it's it. The story is told in terms of seven days. Says that not just the author's not giving you a time frame. He's showing you what is going on and what it is. Is God is making a covenant with all of creation that he is entering into basically a marriage celebration with what he has made. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So that sets the stage for everything else. So if we know that God created everything, that it was good, that it was beautiful, he created a covenant with it, he sevens it. Seven in Hebrew is actually a verb. If you were getting married, right, and the, the, the priest was asking you to do your vows, and he said, do you take this person to be your beloved wife? In Hebrew, you would respond, I seven which means I swear myself into covenant with you. So that's what God is doing here. I, I want to point out too that point it out, baby. That the um that this is in a certain sense the pattern of prayer as well. Prayer is Ooh. not ultimately meant to be just a, a work. It's actually meant to be a resting, a contemplation, an opening, an en- entirely opening of one's person to God and God's opening his person to you. That's what you're aiming for in Lexio is you're aiming for the co- contemplative act where God um, works within you in a way that is is covenantal. It's the exchange of persons, but it's the resting that's um, good. And so I, I just like, so that, that seventh day is actually also what we want to do in prayer. Cause if you just work all the whole time, it gets, it, it's just laborious. Whereas it's like, no, we want to go there. And we even, the, the, the word we used for rest is usually the word recreate, which is literally recreate. Yeah. So whenever we have, this is why we're supposed to have a Sabbath day, a day of rest, not just because we need a nap from all of our work from the week, but so we can literally recreate. We enter into God's creative process. He rests. And we can enter into that. We, we recreate. We recreate. And that leads us, um, conveniently enough, to the responsorial psalm, which is 104. And I want to tie this back into that first reading. And something that we didn't get a chance to say, when God begins to create, what it says is that there, well, what the NAB, what, what our mass version translation says is, a mighty wind swept over the waters. And that's fine. The, the word in Hebrew for wind or breath or spirit is ruah. Ruah. Which, it can mean all three of those things, though. It can mean wind, it can mean breath, it can mean spirit. And so it's God's breath, which is, we believe, his Holy Spirit, which is sweeping. It's actually performing the act of creation. It's sweeping over the face of the waters. It is separating all these things. It's God's spirit that's doing this, his breath. Which we're going to see a little bit later. Well, we see it in the psalm here, in Psalm 104. What does he say? Lord, send out your... Ruah. It's actually his ruah. And what? Renew, recreate the face of the earth. 
Because even though this story in Genesis is talking about how God created everything, it's being given, it's being written into a people that are living like we always are in a time of strife and war and sin and chaos. Yeah. So our call in, in, in putting this in the first reading of this profound day of the year is calling God to do that creative act again. Send your Ruah, send your Holy Spirit, which was active in the first days of, of the created order. Send it back again, renew us, recreate us, because we know that you can, we know that you do, and you've already sworn yourself to us, so we know that you will. Yep. And I think that's what Psalm 104 is, is getting at, right? Yep, and there's an option. Some some priests might actually choose to go with Psalm 33, by the way. You're an option. Dude, I am an option. I, I don't, that Thanks. doesn't even make sense. That's like most of the things you say. Oh, oh that's mean. Dude, How mean-spirited for the Easter Vigil. I really didn't mean to do that. I believe in you. I Thanks, believe man. in you more than I could even ever tell you. <laughs> you're smart. You're good-looking. Thank you. You're nice. Thanks, man. Okay, great. I try. That takes us to the second reading, which is Genesis 22. So it's funny. I mean, this is just how the Bible sort of works. We begin with this beautiful state of things in sort of their perfection. They are declared good. Everything God creates, he said, it was tov, it was good, which means beautiful. And then everything begins to fall apart, right? And we even see that in Genesis 3. (laughs) It begins to fall apart. It all unravels. We see that falling apart sort of embodied in a unique way. Well, you see it throughout Genesis. So there's this order to the book of Genesis. Yes. And, And really it's all of salvation history, that things tend to move, if you picture this in your head, so everything starts with chaos, right? The world is chaos. It's tohu, abohu. <laughs> Please silence your cell phones during the podcast. Yeah. Talk about chaos. Sorry. So it moves from chaos to order, back to chaos, back to order, back to chaos. So God is constantly following this, right? Which is saying that entropy is not the final word. Never the final word. And what Genesis 22, so the second reading is Genesis 22, verses 1 through 18. Which is the story of Abraham um, and the sacrifice of Isaac. And what it's doing in a very strange way, and we just this was just the first reading, what, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I feel absolutely. like we just had this. I know. It's one of my favorites of all time. Well, what it's doing, though, is God seeking to set chaos back into order. And he's doing it in a very strange way. He's taking human sinful chaos and he's bringing order back out of it. And so what he does is he's taking... So Genesis has these two major parts. There's chapters 1 through 11, which are kind of everything on the cosmic scale. It's It's the universality. God is creating all of humanity, all of creation, all of these things. Here's Noah. He's the father of everybody. And then in chapter 12, everything zooms in onto one person and his family. And the Bible will stay with that one guy and his family line throughout the rest of the book, all the way into Jesus. And so in Abraham, and this is how God works, he uses the, the particular to save the universal. He always moves from the... From the um, particular to the universal, Well, yeah. he does both, because Genesis moves from the universal to the particular, but then it goes back out to the universal. Yeah, and, and well, that's, that's uh, one of the ways some people will call it the scandal of particularity. Ooh. That you actually... Yeah. Ha- like, like if, if you're going to do this, you actually need faithful individuals to... To be able to build upon, it's not yeah. like it's some sort of collective. No, it it actually goes down to the the unique act, and then it pours out, and then right. it, it's it's beautiful. But it is it's hard to understand. And so what this is doing is showing this is this moment when God says to Abraham, "Take so Abraham to put you back in the story." He and Sarah had waited for for years to have a child, 
who God, you know, God promised him at the beginning of his story that you would have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sea, uh, the stars in the sky, and the sand <laughs> on the seashore. Both. Yeah. Um, they waited forever for this. There was a bunch of hiccups. Sarah, and, and Sarai had to have her name changed because the angel said this, and she laughed. And she and cracked up at him. She was she's like, like <laughs> she's like, I'm like 85 years old. Do you know in the Hebrew it actually says she snorted? She snort laughed? No, she snort laughed? Yeah, she's like. <laughs> 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 so that's so she's named Sarah. Dude. No, so that's where Isaac gets his name, which I, means he laughs. Oh, really? It's not Sarah's name. It's Isaac's name oh, that reflects the laughter. Welcome to my brain, man. No, it's good. Talk about it's bringing there. You know, order out of chaos. <laughs> it's all that's why we do this podcast. <laughs> But he finally has this son, Isaac, and then God says, take him up to this mountain and sacrifice him. And we've talked about this before. So, I mean, I always had this image in my head of this, you know, big Abraham taking his little tiny son up the mountain to sacrifice him. But that's not actually the case. If no, you, if you do the math, he, he's, he's around 30 years old, really. Yeah, he's in his 30s. Yeah. So, and Abraham is super old. He's in his hundreds. So, I mean, if there's a 100-year-old guy and then a 30-year-old guy going up the mountain... Who's got the upper hand? Well, obviously, the 30-something-year-old guy could, could totally take the 100-year-old guy. And it actually says specifically that it was Isaac carrying the wood for his own sacrifice up the mountain. Which is why I love this, is because <clears throat> it's such a direct imaging of Jesus Christ. It is. Who carries the wood of his sacrifice on his own back. Absolutely. And the only difference in the stories between this, which is pointing ahead to Jesus, is that, of course, on Calvary, there's no angel to stay the hand of the of the. The evil one who Which, kills him. The, and this is the thing that is really important. This is on Mount Moriah. And Mount Moriah is mentioned twice in scriptures. Yeah. Um, this time. But then also it's mentioned in like Second Kings or something um, where uh, you have, uh, it's, it's Samuel, he decides to build the temple. Yeah. And it's because of uh, David's presence um, in that particular moment of some guy's workshop or farm or like like forge or something, a threshing floor. And <laughs> right, right, he'd right. made this big declaration. So he said, this is where it's going to be in yep. honor of our father David. And so Mount Moriah is right in the heart of Jerusalem, and which is what we call the Temple Mount now. Well, this is what's kind of funny about it. We're not, we're not exactly sure where Mount Moriah... Moriah was a mountain range. Really? Yeah. So this is a range of mountains, Moriah. So, so nobody's 100% sure which mountain, but the thing... Here's the kicker. At the end of the story... Um, because God spared his son, he says, I'm going to rename this mountain. Where is it? Oh, I'm, I'm in the wrong reading. He says, I'm going to rename this mountain. Where is it? Uh, Yahweh Yira. Hence, provides. which means on this mountain, the Lord will see or the Lord will provide. Yahweh Yira is at the foot of that mountain that eventually becomes Yairu Salem. So Yahweh Yairu becomes Yairu Salem. The city of Salem is probably oh. very nearby. And it becomes Jerusalem. So what you find is that in the first reading, and so this is how we're tying them together. In the first reading, God is bringing order out of the chaos in creation. Yeah. In the second major reading, what he's doing is bringing order to the chaos of his people. And he's pointing ahead to the establishment of a holy city, a holy nation, a holy people led by Abraham, who is willing to give up his only son on God's behalf, which is going to image what God will eventually do for all of humanity. Why? Because if we're talking about ordering, if you look and like we have right, you know, Cain and Abel. Yeah, this whole notion of sacrifice right at the beginning. There's they're trying to order like where do we put God in relationship to what we do, and they they're offering sacrifice of this. Yeah, um, but but it 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 really kind of already gets messy. It gets it gets messed up immediately. Oh, it's messy. And so how do we so 
how do we actually find and put God first? How do, how do we actually make the worship that we have, the, the outward expression of worship, interiorly oriented towards God alone? And that's what's so, so dynamic as we actually listen, because the ordering of our own hearts is really hard to do. Yeah. And that's what's impressive about Abraham is mm. that his heart is really ordered towards the Lord. He had to screw up a whole lot to get there. He did. And he had to fail profoundly to get to the place where he's a whole 100-year-old, 20-year-old man. Well, I don't know if he had to, but he did. But he did. And God works with it. Yes. I think that's a dangerous route to head down. And sometimes we fall into that as Catholics, you know, especially those of us who are really serious about our faith. I mean, I've mm. given... You have this incredible testimony and this story of how God moved you from kind of brokenness and sinfulness into a yeah. profound holiness. And quite frankly, I mean, I've, I've messed up plenty of times in my life, and I've got my own difficult story, but there's times where I'm like, man, I wish I had a story as dramatic as Father Peter. Like, I wish <laughs> I was really, really, really bad, and then I had uh, this huge thing. And sometimes we do that. Yes. And we have to be careful that God's going to use us wherever we are. He's going to take our humanity, which is always broken, which is always fallen, which is just messy, Yep. And he's going to bring great good at it. Should a- Did Abraham always have the choice to not try to sell his wife off to Pharaoh? Yeah, he did. <laughs> did he, could he have not gone to Egypt in the first place? Yeah. Could he have not had an affair with his maidservant? Yeah. He always had choice in that. But yet it's through those things that God brings this profound understanding. He didn't have to do it, but he did it. And God's going to clean up the mess, and he's going to bring even greater glory out of those things. Yes. Which is just, that's really comforting. Very comforting. And speaking of that, oh no, not well, speaking that, of that. Well, that's no. the whole point, though. Is it's bringing actually yeah. order out of chaos? Bring order out of chaos. Maybe that's the theme that I didn't realize was. Oh, I don't know, man. I'm just playing with it. We're because like the Lord is doing some stuff. I got some other ideas. Oh, there's ideas. Mm-hmm. So Psalm 16. Just lest you lest you think that this is the church overreading a story in the Old Testament. Psalm 16, which is our responsorial psalm here. Um, is actually the thing that I think is so interesting about Psalm 16. Psalm 16 shows up in the New Testament in Acts chapter 2, when Peter is giving this big speech explaining what these Christians believe and why we believe Jesus is who he was. In his in his big sermon, um, he uh, uses Psalm 16 as his explanation for what Jesus did. I just want to read you really quick. This is from Acts chapter 2, verse 22. When Peter stands up and he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, whom God did through whom uh, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, him being determined being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, you have crucified, you put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he'd be held by it. For David said this concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. He is at my right hand that I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced. My tongue was glad. My flesh shall also rest in hope. You will not leave my soul in Hades, etc. He goes on. This is Psalm 16, which we have a response, which is, you are my inheritance, O Lord, which is really what God is trying to say to Abram. And really, if you put the story of Abraham in perspective, if you look at the whole story, what God has asked Abraham to do is three things. At the beginning of the story, he says, I want you to leave your home and your family and everything and basically entrust me with your past. I want you to give your past, your, your safety, your comfort, your family. I want you to give it all to me. Yep. Then he's on the road and God says, I'm going to show you where to go when you get there. So just start moving. So he's asking Abraham to trust him with his present. 
And then at the end of the story, he says, now I want you to sacrifice the son that you've waited for. Are you willing to trust me with your future? What is your real inheritance? Is it this, is it this son or is it all that I want to do through you? I am your inheritance. It's not just this kid. He's good. This is, this is wonderful. And I want to do things through him. Mm. I'm your inheritance. It's yeah. not, it's not as small as you think it is. It's far, far bigger. And in that light, then Peter stands up and he says, look, this whole Psalm with, you know, being allotted my portion and cup, um, my soul is rejoicing. My body abides in confidence, even though, um, I feel like I'm surrounded by the netherworld and I'm surrounded by all this sin and chaos. I trust that you're my inheritance, that you're going to bring me out of this. That's what you saw when you crucified Jesus. That's what happened, says Peter. This is the answer to the question of, of Good Friday. Does that make any sense? It totally does. But I was struck by the fact that, that Peter chose to quote that. Which I thought was cool. Yeah, it's really cool. And that takes us to Exodus. Chapter 14, this is 15 to the 15 one. Yeah, yeah, 14, that is. 14, 15 to the, for the rest of the 14th chapter. <laughs> yeah. Which, yeah. Which I watched the um, uh, Exodus of Gods and Kings, the Ridley Scott um, movie in 3D. Was it good? Um, no, well, I it. Really, really beautifully done. Okay. But they just decided to rewrite the story. Oh, come on. Of Genesis, which is like totally against... Um, oral Lame. tradition. Lame. It's like, if you ever want to know what oral tradition is, watch uh, Exodus of Gods and Kings or Noah and watch ha- mm. what happens in your heart. Mm. And you will know what oral tradition is. You, we, we, the, these stories are, are in the fabric of our being. Mm. And as soon as you start to mess with it, you're like, hold on, this something's not right here until you're like so far off that you're... that um. That uh, but it, it was beautiful. You saw the mm. east wind, but you missed the wall of walls of water, and there were some waves and stuff. But like nobody <laughs> survived, and then Moses wasn't an agent in it, oh, and it was just on. like it was just really upsetting on that. It's like it's like no, you, you miss how God wants to relate to His people, dear Ridley. Come on, Ridley. Well, the real version is really cool, and it does take us back to the to the first reading. So in the beginning, what it, what it says is the Lord said to Moses. Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to go forward. So they're they're free. So this is the moment that they've been released from slavery in Egypt, right? The tenth plague has happened. The firstborn son has died. It freaks Pharaoh out. It's finally the and it, it makes everybody in Egypt horribly angry and and afraid. Not everybody. Well, no, the, the people start giving them all their jewelry and stuff because they're like they want them gone. Well, that that's true, but there's another piece to this which I find fascinating. If you read, not even between the lines, but especially in the original language, tons of Egyptians came with them. Oh, really? And at the beginning of the plagues, remember all the ten plagues that God does? Yeah. God says, my intention for these plagues is not just that I want to freak everybody out, it's that I want them to know me. And he says, I want Israel to know me, I want Egypt to know me, and I want all the nations to know me. Whoa. There's three. There's actually four levels of knowing that the, the plagues were supposed to accomplish. Number one, Israel had forgotten who God was. So he's like, I want to be known by my children. Number two, I want these Egyptians to know me too because I am their king, I'm their father as well. Number three, I want all the nations to hear about what I'm doing and realize this is for real. And then number four, I want every generation hereafter to be reminded of these things because what I want is to be known. That's the goal. And so when they leave Egypt, you, you, you really get the sense there's this massive mixed multitude of not just Israelites, not just Egyptians, but tons of people from other nations that Egypt was enslaving at the time. So this is one of the first mass acts of evangelization. 
and people converting and coming along and being like, we want this to be our God as well. So tons of Egyptians go with them, which is really a profound moment. So as they escape, you're looking at me with that weird look. Man, you're really excited or you're... I know, I'm totally, I'm, okay. I'm wrapped in contemplation that, of that. It's, it's amazing. It's like beautiful, actually. Like, And this is where the Old Testament kind of gets shortchanged. And we, we want to... Well, Martin Luther was really big on, on really juxtaposing the Old Testament and the New Testament. And he really thought they had little to say to each other. But the Old Testament is prefiguring the New Testament. It is about evangelization. It is about God wanting the hearts of his people. It is all about those things. This is the first mass example of it. And it's yeah. profound. So they leave Egypt, and then they get to the Red Sea. But well, meanwhile, you know they have they have some defense from God. They've got the pillar of smoke in the day and the pillar yeah, of fire right, right. by di- by night. Which True that. which if you know that the Egyptians are coming after you, and that all of the death and the horror and the real struggle of of like the hardness of heart that was was trying to be broken down. Absolutely. Like they and if you also realize, well, we've taken a bunch of his people now as well. Yeah. So and now he's going to be really ticked and off. So, so they're like, where do we go? And there's this big fire. They're like, we're trapped. Yeah. It's just very natural for them to do that. And Moses is like, um, but the Lord is like, why are you doing it? Come on. Seriously, dude? Right. Seriously. Right. Did you not just see like what just happened? Oh, yeah. It, it's pretty. But so he tell. OK, so he tells him. Um, tell the Israelites to go, move, start going. There's a big sea in front of you. That's fine. Just go anyway. Yep. It's basically telling him essentially what he told Abraham. You can't see the way through, but go anyway. You don't see where I'm leading you, but start walking anyway. It's the same thing he says to us, right? You don't see the way, but just start walking and yeah. I will show you. Yes. And you lift up your staff and with your outstretched hand over the sea, split the sea in two that the Israelites might pass through it to dry land. What it actually says when this happened what separates the sea in two? Guess what it is in Hebrew. Uh, a tab- you know? tabohu, a no, no, I don't know. What is the thing that separates the sea? Wind, east wind. The ruah. It's the same word. It's God's ruah from the beginning that separated the light from the dark, the air from the sea, oh. that now separates the Red Sea for them. It's the same creative God. It's the same spirit that brought order out of chaos that is now ordering the chaos of these people's particular lives. And of course, oh. where all of this is pointing and where the, the response to Royal Psalm is going to, well, no, the response to Royal Psalm is going to say something else. But where the, some of the other readings are pointing is, you know, the early church looked at this and they saw this profound, even Paul looked at this and saw the imagery of baptism, right? Yes. Because what is baptism? Well, baptism is that act where we pass through water from death to life, from slavery to freedom, which is what they're doing. And I was reflecting on that this morning. And I realize well, uh, that's, a, that's a neat analogy and that's nice and we think about that. But I'm not sure if we realize how strong that analogy actually is. Because what's happening in the Red Sea is you have Israel passing through this water from death to life, from slavery to freedom. And you have the enemy forces who wish to destroy them actually being killed in the water behind them. Yes. And I started thinking about baptism. What happens to us when we're baptized? Well, yes, we die to our old selves. We rise anew in Christ. We pass from our slavery to sin to freedom. But what's also happening, I think, in baptism is that our enemies are being drowned. The demons that follow us, the baggage that we have, the sin, the brokenness, the chaos, the chariots that are running after us are being drowned when a Christian is baptized. They're being destroyed in the sea. Well, and it's not just about us, yes. which I had never thought about that before, but I was taking the analogy a little further. 
Well, and even just listen to how it said, and, and in the morning, yeah, 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 the yeah. watch of the Lord and mm. the pillar of fire and the cloud looked down upon the host of the Egyptians. Mm. So it's almost like the, <laughs> the, the countenance of God broke through and showed itself to the Egyptians. And it clogged their chariot wheels so and they could hardly drive. What does baptism do? It clogs Satan's wheels. So we can't move. So he slows us, him down. So we can't come after us. Yes. I mean, I was reading all of this. Their chair, their wheels are clogged. They sounded the retreat. The Lord was fighting for them against the Egyptians. They were discomforted, which is a weird translation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was a pretty. It's pretty cool. Confounded. That's a better yes. word. Isn't that good? Yeah, I like that word. You know, thrown into confusion, disturbed. It's like, how do I even deal with the glory of God when I'm so focused on my wrath? Yeah. That, I think the most interesting part of this comes in the responsorial psalm, which is not a psalm. It's the next chapter of Exodus, which is Exodus 15. You know what Exodus 15 is, right? It's the song uh, It's the song that they were singing in the midst of the sea. The song of Miriam, the hymn of Miriam. And yeah, it's, it, it's this psalm about deliverance, how God has saved us. He has delivered us. We're free now. But like you said, if you read closely, they're still probably in the middle of the sea. So there's giant walls of water on both sides of them that could crash down any second. And they're singing about God's deliverance. It's profound because they really haven't been delivered from the sea yet. They're not out. They're still in the middle of the chaos. They've got this little path of calm. They've got path a path of order in the midst of the chaos which I think is one of the most profound things about this hymn. They're singing a hymn of redemption in the middle of, uh, as suffering and death and chaos surrounds them, which again, this is the call of the Christian. I mean, you're going to baptize, I don't know how many people on Saturday night, and we're doing it in the midst of a culture that I don't know if any time has been quite as chaotic as we have right now and confused in so many voices and so much sin and confusion and accusations against Christians. And you're going to baptize a bunch of people who are going to say, yeah, I want Satan confounded behind me. I want the wheels clogged so that I can pass through death into life. And you're doing it in the middle of a culture right outside the doors that is insane. Yes. That's moving forward, even though we can't quite see where we're going yet. Yes. And that's really profound. And that's what this hymn is all about. Oh, boy, howdy, is it? Oh, boy, howdy. Mm-hmm. And that takes us to Isaiah 54 verses 5 to 14, mm-hmm. which is going right to the heart of what we are, we're actually talking. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. Well, and this is a whole new level of revelation. So, I mean, throughout the Old Testament, you get different levels of revelation. So in the first reading, God was revealed to us as creator, right? He's creator who makes these things out of chaos, out of nothing. He does this in... Um, in Genesis 22, he is the God who spares people, right? Mm. Who, his wrath relents. In Exodus, he's the God who redeems. He delivers people out of the midst of these things. So he's God creator. He's God spare. He's God redeemer. And now Isaiah says, oh, by the way, he's God spouse as well. As if creator, redeemer, all these things weren't enough. He's actually your maker. The one who created everything out of nothing, who brought order out of chaos, is actually your spouse. So it's this whole new level of revelation that no one could have ever dreamt of before. And it's being revealed. Isaiah is interesting because it takes you through the story from just prior to Israel going off into exile as punishment for their sin, all the way through it and looking ahead toward the end of it and what it's going to be like when they come out. This is toward the end of the book. And so this is really, it's the, it, it's a, it's 
Isaiah 54 is really another kind of a hymn about the future glory that God's going to bestow on his people. There is hope. It is on the horizon. This is probably being written in the middle of the chaos, in the middle of their slavery, of their, their captivity in Babylon. But it's pointing ahead to this, this new moment. And there's one... Well, what do you think? And I have one other thing to say about this reading. Well, I, I, I'm just listening with, the, with these eras of formlessness, forming and filling, formlessness and void, and, and um, listening to uh, the rhythms of chaos and order. And as, as I'm looking at this, I mean, that's, this, is, this is talking about the relationship with God and how like, we need to have the intentionality that there is reality to have an ordered relationship with God. Because so Say that again. We need to have the intentionality in okay. our lives, okay. regardless of whether or not we have an ordered relationship with God. Because okay. sometimes we, okay. we it, it's it's easy in our lives to be like, God is mean to me. God is, uh, we have distorted images of who God is in the Old Testament, distorted images of who Jesus is in the New Testament. We have distorted things and understandings and experiences. God doesn't hear my prayer. But like this in is, is saying, no, like, um, there is a time in which you are going to experience something that is um, very difficult relationally with me. Yeah. Well, you've already experienced it. I mean, that's kind of what it's going through. Like, you're experiencing it now. Yes. And, and, and you and, feel abandoned. For a brief moment, I abandoned you. In other words, it seems like I abandoned you, but I was just hiding. Yes, because I'm your husband. Right. I am bound to you. I'm covenanted to you. Which is what we saw in the first reading. Which is this chaos, but saying, no, the order's going to come. And it's like, how do we have hope in that order? I mean, that's yeah. that's, that's the whole thing with the Old Testament we've been talking about this whole year, is that it does not satisfy in and of itself. Yes. It's pointing toward. It does. And, and Isaiah 54 points to it in a very... I love this because I ran across this as I was reading through them. It's really specific how it says he's going to bring that order. You'll like this. Check this out. Hit me. It's a, it's verse 11, I think, is where it starts. Um, do, 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 oh, oh, afflicted, afflicted one, storm-tossed. Yeah, oh, afflicted one, storm-battered and unconsoled. I lay your pavements in... Um, sapphires. Car- carnelians, your foundations in sapphires. I'll make your battlements of rubies, your gates of carbunicles. Carbuncles. Carbuncles. <laughs> and your walls of precious stones. That's actually... Um, a really specific echo of Revelation 21. And isn't it's it describing isn't it the new all, temple? Yeah, in the new temple. Don't we have echoes of that also in, in Ezekiel. Ezekiel? We do. Not the reading this week from Ezekiel. Yeah. But we do. So, I mean, it's it's literally laying building plans. It's giving blueprints. So, I'm not just going to restore you. I'm not just saying, oh, it's everything's going to be fine. It's going to be nice again. Look, here's the blueprints for you. This is what it's going to look like. These are the stones. This is the kind of slate that you're going to have in your bathroom floor right i mean it's so specific which is beautiful which is very husband like it kind of is isn't it this is here's what i'm gonna build you it's gonna look like this this is gonna be the renovation and this is gonna be the jewels yeah and you're like oh i I dig that and carbuncle yeah yeah this is beautiful that's cool and again remember and that's where the, the response oral that goes along with this one which is psalm 30 i will praise you lord for you have rescued me it it's it's a word that's spoken in the midst of their disaster. It's just like the the hymn of Miriam in the Red Sea. They haven't been rescued yet, at least as, as far as they can tell. Nope. I will praise you, Lord, for you have rescued me. It puts a future event in the past tense. 
Let me say that again. A it puts a future, future event, event in, in the, the past, past tense. tense. Because God is. He is eternal. He has rescued you. You just can't see it yet. Mm. But he is, he was, and he is to come. He has Ooh. rescued you. I don't feel like I'm rescued. Well, he has. You will soon. Soon the veil will be lifted, and you'll understand what that means. But I was really struck by that. A, past, a future event is put in the past tense because it's stepping into God's eternal. Move forward. I know you don't see where you're going yet. Hey, see that big C? Start walking toward it. Mm. But there's no road. Well, there will be. But I can't see it yet. Well, it'll be there. Yeah. You have rescued me. Yeah. And if you've done it in the past, you're going to do it in the future. And that's what this psalm is asking us to trust. And it's asking Israel, again, who in chapter 54, they haven't received this rescue yet, at least as far as they can tell. But it's asking them to pray this. And now, the, the context of Psalm 30 is actually a Davidic psalm. And David's reflecting on how God did save him from the enemy nations when he became king and he established Jerusalem. But that speaks ahead to something else that is yet to happen. It's, it's universal in its scope, even though it's particular in the author who's writing it. And that's, again, this idea of the universal and the particular. David's writing a particular psalm about what happened in his life, but its scope is universal in what it will happen to all of our lives, which is neat. Which is neat, which keeps us going. Keeps us moving. Psalm, uh, reading 5 from Isaiah 55. So this is just the next chapter of Isaiah. Um, if <laughs> I like, Isaiah... I, li- I like the translation of mine. Uh, oh, no. It says, ho... Everyone oh, who yeah. thirsts come to the water. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> that's yeah. It just makes me smile. It should make you smile. That's a word that you shouldn't need translating. <laughs> ho should be ho in Hebrew or in English. Yeah. Well, it's oi, oi, oi in Greek. Here's the thing, though. If Isaiah 54 was pointing ahead, so let let's let's follow what we've seen so far. God created everything. He is creator. He has done this. Um, he is creator. He makes everything. He orders everything, brings it out of chaos. Genesis 22, he saves. He has the ability to save those who are in distress, um, pointing ahead to way he's going to do this universally. He established cities. He establishes peoples. He redeems. He yeah. brings people out of slavery. He begins yeah. to establish them as nations, not just individuals. Um, and he can do that in the midst of suffering. They're going to blow it. These nations that he establishes are probably going to blow up, but he is still their spouse. And even when it looks dark, he is not just creator. He is not just that one who can save. He is not just redeemer. He is spouse, even when it doesn't look like it. And now Isaiah 55, the fifth reading says, but there's more to it. It's not just that he's spouse. It's not just that he's going to build you a beautiful building with jewels in it. But now if you're thirsty, if you have actually worldly needs, come to me, drink. If you're thirsty, drink. So what he's saying is that he's going to make a beautiful house and then he's going to fill it. Ooh, you had your joke face on. <laughs> so I was expecting something lame. Yeah, he's going to build a beautiful house and then he's going to fill it. Then he's going to fill it. Come, and it's Ooh. not going to cost anything. And this wow. is and 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 then this and what does it look like to be filled? It's going to be love and wine and milk and and pardon. Love and, and wine and milk. That is my. That's going to be my Easter week. <laughs> <laughs> love, wine, and milk. Yeah, which is actually fat. It's um, it, it, it translated <laughs> Way to in ruin Greek. It. Yeah, Mil- I mean wine, wine and milk. Milk. It's the fat of the land. It's the Got it. everything's awesome and good. <laughs> hey, the- everything is cool when you're part of the team. Why spend your money for the things that are not bread? In other words, you've already done that. You've already tasted the things that aren't bread, and look at where they got you. 
They didn't satisfy. You went the way of the pagans. You went the way of political power, of material wealth, of having a bunch of wives. It didn't work. So now come and get the real water. Why are you going to spend your money on all of these different things that mm. don't satisfy? So heed me and you'll eat well. You think that your power, and this is the story of Israel, you think your power lays in your political alliances and your wealth and your military powers. You've tried it. It didn't work. Stop spending your money on McDonald's when you can when you can go have a um, filet mignon, right? Yeah, it's it's but it's come into the house. That's where you actually need That's, to be. You have to do something. Yes. You, you have to move. It's like Exodus. You have to move forward. You can't stand on the shore of the Red Sea and just hope something will change. You have to start walking. You got to get your ankles in the water. Absolutely. And that's where you're saying, that's like, I, I'm, I, it's not just that I'm going to, um, to it, it, the chaos of your life can be ordered, but it has to be intentional. Yeah. You have to actually take good intention and move. It's, it's, uh, it's funny. I, I like the, um, the uh, the lean startup. Um, Eric Ries wrote a business book. And, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And and there, there's one concept. He's like, just get going. Minimum viable product. Like, yeah. what does it mean to actually move? You just move, and then you're gonna figure it out as you go along. You'd be surprised on how much actually takes place if you put your trust and your dependence on God. It's true. Yeah, it's true. I mean, that's that's the key to discernment as well. You know, we work with a lot of students here that are, you know, discerning should I become a religious sister or a priest or married? You make well, a you move. you got to move. Ask a girl out. The archbishop, you know, would always say when we were discerning things, he was like, well, date some girls and see what happens. Yeah. Like, don't, you know, don't do it foolishly or unhealthily, but go on a date. You know, if you're called to marriage, you might want to try that out. If you're called to, the, if you think you're called to the priesthood, go and spend some time with some priests. Go to a monastery. Go. Go to a convent. Go to a convent. Not if you're called to be a priest, but that's yeah. So yeah. With, exactly, anyway, you gotta, you gotta you, move. It's Ignatian. You it's like do you, something. You, you make you 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 make an act of the will. Then the Lord can. <laughs> this is the thing: is that you can. Um, I think that was a yawn. I think it. Uh, it, was it turned bird. weird. It was weird. Okay. Um, but this is the thing: is you cannot steer an unmoving ship. Yes, or a, a parked car. That's a good point. Thanks. Psalm Isaiah twelve. <laughs> Psalm Isaiah 12. Psalm that, Isaiah 12. Actually, that's how it says it right here. Oh, yeah, it does. Response to Psalm Isaiah 12. So if Isaiah 55, it's the part of Isaiah where it's looking forward and saying, this is what I will do for you. Isaiah 12 is actually going way back to before any of this even happened. And it's saying, even then, I've been saying, you will draw water joyfully from the springs of salvation. You haven't even made all your mm. mistakes yet. You haven't even fallen yet, Israel. But I know you will. And I also know that someday you will draw water, like the Red Sea, that will bring you from death into life, right? It's like I'm reminded of that. Remember there's that line in the gospel where Jesus is talking to Peter, uh, and he's saying, I'm never going to betray you. I'm never going to deny you. Yeah. And he's like, well, once you get back up again, you need to go and strengthen your brothers. And it's this assumption that, okay, you're going to blow it. You're going to fall. And once you have... You need to get back up because you actually have a job to do. It it it, it assumes that he's going to do this. Yeah, I know. I love that one. I, I love it too because it's not Jesus' biggest concern. I'm sure he wishes he wouldn't have. And Peter, of course, had the choice not to. But Jesus says, all right, get back up. It's going to happen. You're going to blow it. But what you really need to worry about is getting up and doing your job then. Israel, yes. what you really need to worry about, even though you are going to fall, you're going to be punished. You're going to be brutalized in a lot of ways. But then you need to get up and draw this water because it's going to bring you back to life. Yes. And that takes us to Baruch. <sighs> Baruch, 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 Baruch. I always want to say Baruch Atah. I just want to say that. You should. You. Some people may have never heard of Baruch. 
before, especially our Protestant friends, because it is one of the Deuterocanonical books. So it's not in the Protestant Bibles. It's also not in Hebrew Bibles. Because it, it's a, it's originally written in Greek for the dia- diasporal audience, right? Not Greek. It would have been, what? well, what language? It wouldn't have been Hebrew. Wouldn't have been Hebrew. That that's one of the that's one of the keys to how these things fit. Baruch, though, it's a profoundly important book. It's a beautiful book, and I wish it, it is in the Septuagint. So the reason that we have it in our Bibles is because it's in the Bible that Jesus was reading. Got it. So it might not be in certain Protestant Bibles. It wasn't in the Jewish Bible that was assembled in the three hundreds. It was in the Septuagint Bible that Jesus was reading when he was studying the Scriptures. That's why we own. That's why we have it. Nice. Um, Baruch. It, here, here's the thing with Baruch. Baruch. Do you know who Baruch was? Do you know anything about this book? No, I don't. Much. He's a very important figure. He was Jeremiah's secretary. He's oh, okay. Jeremiah's scribe. Got it. And what this is is Baruch. So, um, sort of linearly. It comes after, so the book of Jeremiah talks about the destruction of Jerusalem because of their sin. Then you have Lamentations, which is basically a eulogy hymn for Jerusalem. And then usually you have the book of Baruch, or sometimes it's put before Lamentations. Because Baruch is uh, Jeremiah's secretary up in exile in Babylon. It's believed that he brought this book back to the suffering exiles who were still being kind of brutalized in Jerusalem as a word of hope. Wow. And there's three parts to it. It basically starts chapters one through three is about the problem. Basically, where are we now and how did we get here? Okay, we're in exile. Why? What What happened? Part two, starting in verse three, nine, which is where this comes from, is the solution. How do we change? And then the third part is the promise. What does the future hold? Right? Mm-hmm. So it's the three part. And here's what's so profound. So it, it begins by saying, hear, O Israel, the commandments of life, listen and know prudence. Prudence is what the, you're going to hear in Mass. The word is actually wisdom and what this all is about. So as far as the problem goes, we know what the problem is. We're in sin and exile. What is the solution? How did we get here? Well, well the solution is wisdom. The solution is the Torah. So, I mean, we're dealing with a time in history where they've been stripped of the Holy Land. They've been stripped of the temple, their priesthood, liturgical sacrifice. So the Jews are asking this question, well, what do we have left? And if you've lost the temple and the priesthood and the sacrifice and the Holy Land, what's the only thing you have? Well, you have the Torah. We still have God's word and we can still gather around this. That's where the concept of synagogues came from, synagogos. They say, okay, well, we don't have the temple anymore. What do we have? We have these scrolls, which are the word of God. We can gather, we can synagogue around them. Mm. That is going to be our liturgy. That will be our life. And in the scriptures, in the Torah, they begin studying. They realize, oh, we were warned about this. We were told, God said, if you did these things, then this would happen. And as you go through this about the wisdom and studying the Torah and realizing what happened, it ends with this jump into chapter 4. And, and here's actually how it ends. It says, um, uh, da, 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 turn O Jacob and receive her, that is wisdom. Walk by wisdom, the Torah's light towards splendor. Give not your glory to another, your privilege, privilege to an alien race. And in response, it jumps to chapter 4, and the Israelites say, Blessed are we, O Israel, for what pleases God is known to us. All of chapter 4, most of it, is this hymn of praise of this people who are living in exile and actually currently t- being slaughtered, being taken prisoner, and being put into exile. And they're saying, blessed are we. Now, why on earth would a people who are actually being taken into exile and slaughtered be saying, blessed are we? Well, the answer is because they realize how they got there. Uh Blessed are we because we get it now. Yes. And it's the first time actually in all of these readings 
that the readings have all been, and God did this. God created this. God saved Isaac. God set them free. God is going to give you living water. God will build you a house. And then you get the response, which is, blessed are we, because we get it now. And all of a sudden, Israel responds to these readings, which we've been getting, tracing us through salvation history, showing us what's happened. And if you realize that things are a mess and you look back and you get how you got there, then you can have clues for how to get out. If you are feeling like you're enslaved, then you need to look to baptism to set you free. If you feel like your life is headed in the wrong direction, then we have means to reconcile ourselves back to God. If you don't know that, if you don't even know how you got there, if you don't even know that you need salvation, then woe are you and sorrowful are you. If you realize, oh, wow, I'm in deep sin, but there's this thing called confession. Blessed are we because I can actually get out of this. I can deal with this. It might hurt. It might be painful. There might be penance. But gosh, I understand how to get out of this now. I understand where I came from. I understand what I've done. I understand why that sin is actually bad, and I can try to avoid it in the future. That is the key to life. That is the key to what Baruch calls wisdom. And they say, we get it now. Mm. Blessed are we. Yeah, we're in exile, but at least we know how we got here. And that gives us a clue to how to get out. Yeah, And that, I think, is the turning point of all of these readings. You know, the fathers looked at Baruch's um, descriptions of wisdom, yeah. and they say, oh, it's Jesus. Jesus is wisdom personified. It actually says wisdom is going to take flesh and walk on the earth one day. And they're like, here's wisdom. It's God's word incarnate. That's why we call Jesus the word of God, because ah. he is God's Torah made flesh. He's going to get us out. So Baruch is looking back and they're saying, oh, it's the Torah that'll save us. Little did they know that the Torah would take on human flesh and go to the cross for them. Wow. So I think that's the turning point of everything. And then you get the Psalm, Psalm 19, Lord, you have the words of everlasting life. That's probably their response. Oh, your words are everlasting life. And again, little did they know that God's word will take on flesh, go to the cross and give us everlasting life because he rose again from the dead. That's why God's words are everlasting life in a way that no one ever dreamed that they were. Yes. Which is cool. It's, uh, it's like understanding your family history coming to fruit and, and like entering into the house and going like, oh my goodness, look how much has happened. Yes. That's awesome. To, okay, so and then, then Ezekiel, here's the cool thing about Ezekiel, is it basically goes back and it recaps the whole story for you. In case you missed anything, this is basically a summation of everything that we did. I think in the liturgy, there's like, oh no, that that happens in the New Testament reading. But okay, there, but yeah, like yeah, absolutely. You're just going like, oh my goodness, this is all. Yeah, in case you were wondering, and it literally is a narrative. Son of man, when the people of Israel lived in their land, they defiled it by their conduct. Therefore, I poured out my fury on them. This is what happened. Here's where they were. Here's what they did. Here's what happened. Here's how I'm going to save them. Yes. And again, it's echoing what we talked about with Exodus. It's saying Ezekiel is saying, why is God going to do this? So that all nations may know my name. I want the whole world to know who I am. That's why this story needs to be told because it's a universal story. And that takes us into the last Psalm. And we'll do the one that, that is celebrated when baptism is celebrated, when this read when baptism is celebrated. Psalm 42. Which is like a deer that longs for running streams, my soul longs for you, my God. It's these living waters that God promised in Isaiah 55. This now is the people's response saying, yeah, I thirst for them. Yes. You promised living waters, I'm thirsty. It's, it's like the woman at the well, right? Yep. Give me this water always. always. <laughs> I am thirsty. But unless you realize your own thirst, 
you're never going to want that water that God has to give. Unless the people of Israel realized where they've come and where they've come from, they're never going to realize how badly they want salvation. That's why the book of Baruch is so beautiful and why it's the turning point, because it's only once they realize, wow, we're really thirsty. Here's actually something that can slate our thirst. That's what changes everything. And that's what this responsorial psalm is doing just before we're actually going to baptize a bunch of people coming into the church, which is really beautiful. Yeah. We're thirsty. And the response of those coming for baptism should be, yeah, I'm thirsty. Let me die in this water. Let me drown in it so I can rise again, which is sort of weird. But that's actually a perfect <laughs> segue into Romans. Yes, absolutely. Which is our segue into the New Testament. Oh. And, and, and again, we're almost out of time, but just to, to Romans is quite simple. And again, given everything else we said, anyone who has imagined that the imagery of baptism is profoundly or is um, primarily one of cleansing, Paul is here to correct you in Romans 6. It's Romans 6, uh, 3 to 11. And he says, no, no, no. When you were baptized, are you unaware that when you were baptized, you weren't just cleansed, you were baptized into his death. You drowned in your baptism so that you could come back out of the water in newness of life. Like Jesus went into the ground for three days and died and then rose again. That's what you've done in baptism. And he's going to use Romans 6 to basically describe why we as Christians, we have been baptized. We shouldn't sin anymore. And he goes on in this long sort of explanation, you know, why should we not persist in our sin? Not just because, well, there's going to be punishment, there's going to be exile, you're probably going to go to hell if you keep sinning. He doesn't say any of that, no. even though it might be true. What he says is you shouldn't sin anymore because it's a lie about who you are. Yes. You shouldn't just sin because you're afraid of getting punished. You shouldn't sin because you've actually died to your sinful self. It's gone. It's dead. Well, you're yeah, not that anymore. And you have to look to, to your whole history. It's like mm. uh, the sacrifice. If you are Isaac, you were not sacrificed. Yeah. If, if you yeah, were yeah, Israel yeah, yeah. in the Red Sea, you did not die in the Red Sea. Well, you well, uh, but you yes were. and no. Like like to who you were, you yes. But now we, you've actually been given new life. You've been given new life. But ultimately, like, because because Jesus ultimately goes down and we're brought into Him. Now, this uh, am I confusing you? Do no, you think that I'm, no. I'm thinking about something. I mean, a lot of these readings are basically about people coming to the brink of death. Yes. They come to the edge, you know, the, 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 the knife is about to go down. They're on the edge of the water. Israel, these are being spoken to the ones who have barely survived. They're always on the edge of death. And then what does Jesus do? He comes and he, and he goes, says, come on, let's go. go We're going into, into death. the death to yes. come back up. The whole Old Testament is bringing us to the brink. Jesus jumps us over the cliff. Yes. Interesting. And and that is for salvation. And that yeah. is why our identity is to say, like, yes, do you understand what the, 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 those are demonstrations of what salvation is until finally Jesus says, come with me. Because there's a, we're yeah. all of, we're afraid of that. And we're afraid of that consistently. What is my inheritance? You are my inheritance. You know what mm. I mean? I, you, you are victorious. You are these things. And we need to know and to say that, to trust, to grasp the hand of Christ as he goes into his death. Yes. And then, then once we do, then we are, then, then we actually know our true identity. We know our name. We know the words that are uttered are true. Yes. That's it. That takes us to the gospel. Because once this has happened, and this, it's funny, the Easter Vigil readings don't actually go through what happened because we've already done that. We did it on Palm Sunday. We're going to do it on Friday. Yep. We'll read through the Passion. Now we get the story behind it and the story that comes after it. And our gospel, it's from Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 7, the very end of the gospel of Mark. 
and it, it begins this way. It says, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Siloam, they brought spices that they go, might go to anoint him very early than the sun, when the sun had risen. The image that's being set here is, so Mark has shown you basically the apostles, the ones closest to Jesus, the ones who should have gone to bat, they've all disappeared. These women are the only ones who have held the faith. They've kept it up. And they wait. it's technically, legally speaking, in the Jewish law, this is the earliest possible moment that they could go and tend to Jesus' body. Because the Sabbath has now ended. It's dawn. The sun is just rising. Finally, they can go. And they can go, and they're shown to be faithful. And what's funny is that they were going on the first day of the week, which harkens us back to the creation story, when God began to create on day one, because this is the first day of the new creation now. First day they came to the tomb, as they were walking to the tomb, they were saying to each other, who will roll back the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? We've heard that line before, but think about that for a second. They're walking, they're going to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body. And what are they saying the whole time? wonder who's going to roll away the stone Yeah, that's way too big for any of us to move. But what are they doing? They're, they're still going. They're going, even though their way has not been, they don't know what the way really is yet. And the way seems like it should be blocked. Yes. But they're going anyway. And they're saying, who's going to do it? It assumes that someone will do it, doesn't it? Their yes. question assumes that someone will roll away the stone for them, yeah. which I find actually one of the most profound things about that. And I've never thought about it until today. They walk forward into the face of an impossibility, assuming that it's going to be moved. I wonder mm. who's going to do it. It's going to be God. Is it going to send? <laughs> I mean, I don't know exactly what yeah, they're thinking. I don't know. But here's what I think is cool. And you'll like this. Um, do, 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 do. Yeah, Mark's mentioned that, um, what does it say? Very early when the sun had risen on the first day of the week, the sun, the, the first day of the week, and you're going back to creation. Some people think that Mark's mentioned that the sun had risen was an allusion to a prophecy that comes at the very end of the Old Testament. And it comes from Malachi chapter 3, verse 20. And I wonder if Mark's paraphrasing it. For to you who fear my name... The son of righteousness will come with healing in his wings. The son of justice will rise. And Mark says, on that day when the sun had risen, I wonder, and some scholars wonder if it's an allusion to Malachi. Yeah, it's it's a it's a homophone or yeah, like a, so. That's why I put that song at the beginning of the podcast dude, today. That's awesome. The son of righteousness has risen. Which is whether he's, he's saying that or not, wings. that's what's happening. Yeah, that's actually what's going on. And then, of course, we sort of know the rest of the story. They looked up. They saw the stone is rolled back. Um, it's gone. It was very large, Mark points out. Then they saw a young man, you know, sitting. It was this angel. And he says, don't be amazed. It's the same thing that um, God basically said to uh, Moses back in Exodus, remember? He's like, why are you so troubled? Why are you? What, what did he say to him? Remember what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, I don't he remember said, that. He uh, said, I want to get the exact wording because it was neat. Why are you crying out to me? And here he says, why are you amazed? Didn't you expect this? Didn't you know? It's just, it's this kind of taken for granted. Of course, if you know the story, and that's what's being said to all of us as we hear this in the readings. You've just heard the whole story. Don't you know that the same God who separated light from dark, who breathed his breath out, who separated the waters of the Red Sea, who brought his people, who promised waters of salvation, why are you amazed that he's risen now? Of course he is. That's what was going to happen. It was always put out there. What the other, the last thing, this is the last thing I'll say. The other thing I love about this is that in the Jewish and the Roman world, a woman's testimony did not hold up in court. It had no legal bearing in the Jewish world. A woman couldn't testify because, and this is sad, but they were considered untrustworthy, which is, which is not 
a, a good thing. That's a, that's a that's a bad reality, but that was the legal reality. So some people say, you know, if the gospel writers were making this stuff up, if this was a forgery, if this is a fake, why on earth would the only people to be witness to this be the women, the precise people whose testimony could not hold up in court? And isn't it interesting that who does God choose to reveal this profound, the, the most profound mystery of all of human history? He reveals it precisely to the people whose testimony would not be listened to in a court of law. Because he says, heck with that. Screw that. I'm going to the lowly. I'm going to the ones that I want to go to because I'm going to show them that I'm more powerful than any of this. I'm more powerful than your courts of law. I'm more powerful than the Red Sea. I'm more powerful than light and darkness. I'm more powerful than your political foes. I'm more powerful than exile. I'm more powerful than sin. I'm more powerful than death. So I'm going to go to who I want to go to. I'm going to show them. And I think that that's really beautiful. That's awesome. That was, dude. I that was like some good preaching right there, man. <laughs> Sorry, I got excited. <laughs> that was. Uh, it's just. It's just. It's awesome. It it's, is awesome. It's, and and then we and we see this, and then what happens in the liturgy right after this, is we see the house being filled, mm. the house was made, and it is prepared, and now it is being filled with. More than we could have ever imagined, which is which are, which is humanity, and they're entering in. Oh. They're coming into the house to actually take on the true their true identity, which is found really in their husband. That's in, cool in the heart, um, and that's just the best. So that's awesome. We wish you a profound and holy Easter vigil, especially those of you who are coming into the church who listen oh, yes. to this to us, and and um, may it be really truly prayerful. Enter mm. in. Uh, I encourage you to the Paschal fast. Mm. Uh, I encourage you to celebrate wholeheartedly in Easter. Um, and, and if you have lived, lived a really terrible Lent, um, uh, <laughs> there's still some time. Just know this. It's that the Lord is risen regardless of us. It is not. We do not save ourselves. Lent is not about that. It's about preparing. And whether we're prepared or not, he is risen. And so we rejoice in it in our new life that God has called us to. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll be back next week in the glow of Easter, celebrating the octave, and we will see you then. Find us on Facebook. Um, send us an email. We love you guys. God bless you. Bye. The Word on the Hill is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado, www.thomascenter.org. You can also send us an email at lankyguys at thomascenter.org. See you next week.